to begin with, I'd like to read to you uh, part of a story from a book by Oliver Sacks. This Rebecca was 19 when she was referred to our clinic. But as her grandmother said, just like a child in some way, she couldn't find her way around the block. She couldn't confidently open a door with a key. She sometimes put on her clothes the wrong way, inside out, back to front, without appearing to notice. She seemed, as her grandmother said, to have no sense of space. She was clumsy and ill-coordinated. A clutch, one report said, a motor moron, another. Although when she danced, all her clumsiness disappeared. Rebecca had a partial class palate which caused a whistling in her speech. Degenerative myopia requiring very thick spectacles. She was painfully shy and withdrawn, feeling that she was and had always been a figure of fun. But she formed warm, deep, even passionate attachments. She deeply loved her grandmother who had raised her. She loved nature and stories, although she never learned to read. She was at home with poetic language and was herself in a stumbling, touching way, a sort of primitive natural poet. She was devout, loved the lighting of the Shabbat candles, going to synagogue, and fully understood the liturgy, chants, and symbols in the Orthodox service. All this was possible for her, despite the fact that she couldn't count change, read or write, and scored low in all IQ tests. Thus she was a moron, a fool, or had so appeared and been called her whole life. But one was an unexpected, strangely moving, poetic power. Superficially, she was a mass of handicaps and incapacities. And at this level, she felt herself to be a mental cripple. But on some deeper level, there was no sense of incapacity, but a feeling of calm and completeness, of being fully alive. Spiritually, she felt herself a full and complete being. When I first saw her in the clinic, I saw her merely as a casualty, a broken creature, who scored low on all tests. The next time was very different. I came across her in the garden, sitting on a bench, delighting in the beautiful spring day. She sat composed with her face calm and smiling. She could have been any young woman, basking in the warmth of a spring day. This was my human as opposed to my neurological vision. Spurts of poetic sudden words fell from her lips as she described the beauty of the day. She had scored appallingly in all the tests, yet they had given no inkling of anything but the deficit. They had given me no hint of her positive powers, no intimation of her inner world that was composed, coherent, and poetic. I realized the inadequacy of our evaluations. They failed to show us the beauty of Rebecca, who enjoyed not only a simple but sacred view of nature, who was filled with promise and potential. 
What I saw in Rebecca, what she showed me, I began to see in all of the patients in the clinic. Rebecca was the first to tell me that we paid far too much attention to the defects of our patients and far too little to what was intact or preserved. When I first read this story, it struck me that Rebecca's story could, in a number of ways, equally be any of our stories. But it does at times seem somewhat rare in this life to be seen fully, to be heard fully, to be understood fully. But it also struck me that the story of Rebecca's psychiatrist could also be our story. It is rare perhaps for us to see and understand and hear another person fully. It perhaps might seem rare for us to really see the whole of this moment or the whole of ourselves. We see in our life how prone we are to seize upon the details to seize upon the particulars of things in this life, in ourselves and in others, and assume those details to be the truth. The whole of meditation, the whole of this path, holds at its heart a willingness to question everything. It holds at its heart a willingness to dive beneath the surface of all things and to come to see beyond the details, to see and understand what is true in the moment, to see the completeness, the wholeness of any moment. We are learning in our practice to go beneath the appearances and to find our way to the heart, to find our way to the simple truth of each moment. More and more we see it in our experience that this is where we find harmony and peace and that it's also our capacity to live in accord with what is true. This is where we find freedom. It's not an easy journey. I I think it takes both a, a lot of courage and also a really a great generosity of heart to cross some of the borders that are created in our own hearts and minds. Borders that are created by judgments, by assumptions, by conclusions. Sometimes to really open to the fullness of anything at all in this life. We're asked to surrender an apparent but also illusory safety that relies upon us feeling that we know something. Sometimes it relies upon us surrendering the illusory safety of our images, our opinions. Investigation is said to be the most important and the most significant factor of enlightenment. 
that its investigation that leads to depth and to awakening is the factor that transforms us. Investigation is what allows us to make the journey from the known to what we don't know. It's the way to peace and to the end of conflict. And on one level, investigation means taking nothing for granted. It's sometimes called a kind of divine curiosity. We've probably come to notice that the world is what we believe it to be. That we become who we believe ourselves to be. That other people are often seen through the veil of who we believe them to be. Some of our beliefs are formed in the space of a moment. We've seen probably so many today when we say, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm inadequate, I'm wonderful. The changing faces of identity, the changing faces of personal beliefs that we can go through countless times in a day. Some of our beliefs are much more historical. They have a much longer lineage. Some of our beliefs are deeply rooted in past experience that is often painful experience. Painful experience seems to have the power to form some of the most solid belief patterns that we carry. We find us carrying through our days or through our lives beliefs that tell us we're helpless or incomplete or vulnerable. We see the way in which outer experience, of course, the world around us, plays a role in shaping our inner beliefs. If someone speaks harshly to us, they ignore us or they offend us, we can see how that contact of the moment plays a role also in shaping our beliefs at that moment. To the person who has offended us, we see here the words in our mind, you know, that you're insensitive, you're cruel, you're heartless. Or we may hear the belief that is formed about ourselves, that I am hopeless. Sometimes in our life maybe we, we fail to reach some desired experience our goal, and we see how that plays a part in shaping our inner beliefs, that we might say to ourselves, or come to believe, I'm a failure. Alternatively, if someone praises or applauds us, shows us kindness, our beliefs can change in that moment. Suddenly we're worthy, we're, we're lovable, and of course, our flatterers is the most benevolent person in the world. We see this in our meditation experience all the time. You know, we have a difficult sitting, and it's not that often that we come out of a really difficult and challenging sitting and, you know, smiling and saying, look how wonderful I'm doing, how wonderful I am. You know, mostly we come out of a grim, downcast, and despairing. 
And yet that can change in a moment. We can have a sitting that is really delightful and our face lights up with smiles, you know, and we're already planning our cave retirement. And we see too how those inner experiences shape our outer beliefs. You know, the times when we feel quite lonely, quite depressed or discontented. You know, everybody has these moments. And sometimes they come on a retreat, you know, and, and you know, inevitably happens that, you know, someone feeling rather downcast themselves will come and they'll say in an interview in a group, you know, why is everybody here so depressed? You know, why are they all so miserable and glum? You know, it's a kind of everybody's having such a terrible time. And, you know, we might say, well, how do you know? And it would look at them, you know, look at them. And, and it wouldn't matter if we paraded everybody giving testimonials about what a wonderful, delightful time they were having. Our inner belief is shaping our perception of that moment. And of course, that chair changes too. The times when we, we feel calm, we feel peaceful, we feel at ease, and we just float through the day, don't we? The whole world looks so benevolent and kind, and, and we're so appreciative of everybody around us. They're all such good people. And it's what is really amazing, not that our belief systems or our states of mind can change so much. What is really more amazing is that amidst all these changes, how easily we can get hooked by the belief of the moment. You know, the Buddha once said, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And we see how true that is, that what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. We probably noticed, or it's become clear, clear to us, the way in which we live in a world that is in, in so many different ways formed by our personal beliefs and constructions and values and judgments. And our constructions are our opinions, our views, based upon past experience, our images, our assumptions. Sometimes our constructions, our beliefs, are just formed by the mind state of the moment, whether we're depressed or sad or angry or happy. And they can seem so deeply convincing, and we can live our life through them. A couple of years ago, I had this rather interesting series of experiences. I, I do quite a lot of long-distance traveling that I... I really don't enjoy the traveling part very much. So often before I'm about to take a really long flight, I, I kind of prepare myself and psych myself up for, you know, do all these vitamins, all these things, you know, with none of which make any difference at all, <laughs> I might mention. But anyway, that, that time of getting on the plane, it's always, I always find it difficult to be that cheerful in those moments. And one time I was going to check in for a flight to Los Angeles, and it, I'd gone through my usual rigmarole of getting ready to do this, and I got to the check-in line, and I saw in front of me 14 Elvis Presley impersonators checking <laughs> in on my flight, and I, I did regard it as my flight. And my heart sank, you know, and I thought, oh no, the difficulty is just about to become terrible. <laughs> and it was true. 
you know, these guys were on mice. I'm sure they were lovely people. Um, but, you know, they, they had the hair and the clothes, you know, and the spangles and the sparkles and, and all this other stuff. And they take it on the flight, and they, they kind of sat together, and periodically through the flight, they would break into these albums. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the worst thing was, they spent so much time in the bathroom of the plane, <laughs> fixing their hair, and nobody else could hardly get into this whole bathroom. So I tried to visit, I thought, well, this is... You know, their reality, it's fine, who am I? You know, they came in my reality, they might thought it, think it was pretty weird too. So that, that piece was over, and then I, I was teaching a retreat in, in a rather affluent area of Beverly Hills, you know, and I realized I was walking to this different reality all of a sudden. You know, there were, everybody's house had a sign outside saying, pass this point and you risk being shot. in Arizona and they live in one of these wintertime retirement communities, you know, and I was just kind of walking around, you know, and I was uh, clearly the youngest person on site, although these days I, I don't know there's so much difference, but <laughs> I was the youngest person on site, but all these two were zipping by me, you know, these people were like 10, 20, 30 years older than me, and they were kind of looking at me in this odd way, asking me why I was going so slow, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it was so interesting to keep walking. It was like this, this trip through all these different realities. And each reality had its own set of values and its own set of beliefs and aspirations and views. And this is true for us. We see this journey in our own lives. The various goals that have obsessed us at different times, the changing values and aspirations that have sometimes felt so urgent in our lives and sometimes now we look back on them and say, what was that all about? Um, the different identities we've kind of inhabited. Some of you probably have, like, like I have, uh, well my parents have anyway, this collection of photo albums, you know, and whenever I go visit, they bring out in this embarrassing fashion these photo albums which kind of chronicles my journey through life, you know, and they giggle, you know, and they laugh, and they say, remember when you were a hippie and you looked like that? And they think this is hilarious, you know, and, and remember when you were like that and you did this, and they think this is, you know, they just crack up, and they kind of say, you should do this, and, and we're in company with a whole lot of other people. But it is kind of interesting to track that journey. I mean, times in our lives when we've been so engrossed in something, so passionate about something, and it changes. And yet in the midst of it, we were convinced it was going to be absolutely forever, that we would only see that way, we would only feel that way, we would only think that way. We see it on a more microcosmic level on a retreat, this kind of journey to identity. You know, the move from being, you know, the most, the greatest devotee to the greatest cynic. You know, the movement from clarity and back to doubt and then back to clarity again, you know, 
the movement from chaos to peace and back again. And again, in the moment, we're often sure it is forever. It's so convincing. And it becomes our view of ourselves and the world around us. There's also collective constructions, collective beliefs, where our individual belief patterns find some support or agreement with others. We can support the same football team, you know, we can have the same guru, we can um, have the same pet aversion. You know, some of these beliefs, some of these opinions are on a material level, they might be political, they, they might be spiritual. And we can see sometimes these allegiances of beliefs are really what forms some of the greatest, the most terrible things in our world. Of racism, of sexism, of homophobia, they're all kind of collective constructions. Now some of the constructions that we hold are really fairly neutral. But it's also maybe apparent that some of our beliefs and constructions can be deeply damaging and harmful. And they may have very little to do with understanding or generosity or compassion. But some of our constructions and beliefs have much more to do with fear, with confusion. Nagarjuna's great Indian mystic once said that to cling is to insist upon being someone. And not to cling is to be free, to be no one. And it's tr- I think it's very true that when we insist upon being someone, that that someone often exists in opposition from someone else. A journey of understanding, a journey of freedom is is really a journey where we are seeking to bring our personal construction increasingly close to what is true where we're seeking to bring our personal story, our personal beliefs, our personal reality closer and closer to the simple truth of each moment. Often that journey is a journey of untangling, of undoing, of probing. It is certainly a journey of investigation. And not only for our own well-being and freedom, sometimes undoing our some of our beliefs, constructions, is really for the healing and for the well-being of our world. Because it is, I think, quite apparent how much conflict and hatred and alienation, a lot of it that scars our world, is really a clash of construction, a collision between different beliefs of individuals, of nations, groups. Sometimes I think it would be an interesting experiment to be willing to spend a week in a a silent company of our worst enemy. The person that we're most suspicious of, or the most fearful of. What would happen if we would do that and each, both ourselves and the other person, really entered into that silence with a commitment to see each other fully. 
our willingness to be silent, to listen, is, is a path which can be a beginning of breaking down some of the constructions and some of the images that divide us. When we are silent, one of the most apparent, immediate effects of that is that we are constantly returned to ourselves. And we begin to see more and more clearly where our constructs, our opinions, our judgments arise and how immediately divisive they can be. You know, here on a retreat, if you've noticed there ever a time in a retreat where you find yourself being very judgmental towards someone else, or being very aversive. You see how immediately apparent the division between self and other is in that moment. And, and that division between self and other is, is I understand and I, I feel, a kind of disease of our world. Because it's not neutral, that separation fills with anger, it fills with rage, it fills with, with violence. And we see that when we divide ourselves from other, we also in a way divide ourselves from seeing anything or any anyone fully. It's also perhaps we see in our practice that as some of our judgments, our beliefs, our constructs begin to soften or even begin to dissolve. So that is also a beginning of healing, the, uh, the, the possibility of us emerging into our own home. A journey of freedom, whether it's social, political, or spiritual, whether it's collective or whether it's individual, countless times through history and past and present has always been a journey of breaking down the beliefs that divide. The journey of breaking down beliefs and their confinement. It's also a very individual journey. When we are alone with ourselves in silence, we really begin to feel and to sense the power of our constructs. Whenever we say, I am, we never ever in that moment see the whole of ourselves. In fact, whenever we say, I am, we are always, to some extent, alienated from what is true. And in that process of not seeing the whole of ourselves, conflict and struggle is born. It's born of not being whole. As we learn to see beneath, or to soften, some of the statements, the definitions, the judgments, well, we're really, we can learn in our practice to, to cultivate almost a kind of creative disbelief. A creative disbelief, you know, it's a process of investigation is to cultivate a kind of, another negative disbelief or a doubting disbelief, but a creative disbelief that does have the power to return us to harmony, to peace, to death. All of our opinions, all of our judgments, all of our constructs are formed by seizing just upon the fragments, the details of anything or of ourselves and assuming them to be true. And it's so easy to do that. 
That's teaching a retreat in Israel some years ago. I came out of the office one day, and, and this place in Israel, like many meditation centers, was a kind of magnet for all the local dogs who would hang out there, plus the kibbutz had their own collection of dogs. I came out of the office one day, and I saw this dog lying on the ground, and out of its head was growing this huge mass, terrible, terrible mass growing out of its head. And it was one of those moments where you see something so horrible, you know, it's like your mind kind of stops for a moment in shock. And I looked at this dog lying there with this huge thing growing out of its head, you know, and first there was that moment of silence. That was followed by a kind of uh, moment of um, real compassion for the dog, and that was followed by a moment of a few thoughts about, you know, who's looking after this dog, why are they letting this dog suffer this way, you know, not taking care of the animals, blah, 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 you know, and for a story. So I said, well, what does this dog need? You know, this poor dog, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, it's obviously suffering. And I thought, well, there's nothing more I can do, I'll just do metaphor for it all day, you know. So I went through the morning, quite happily doing metaphor, practicing loving kindness for this dog. It was okay, you know, it was fine, you know, but you know, I'm kind of this poor creature. Um, and I had this whole thing set up in my mind, you know, about what I was going to do to help look after this dog, you know, what I was going to make sure it was taken care of. And I went back to the office a few hours later and I came out again and the dog was sitting up and its tumor was on the ground beside it. And I look at it, you know, <laughs> good on here. And of course, this great mass growing out of the dog's head was a rock. <laughs> it was desert rock, but it was the same color as the dog's fur. And so that this whole morning construction, this whole morning meditation, and whole morning effort was totally in the service of something that was completely untrue. <laughs> It hadn't even examined. Have you seen yourself do something similar? <laughs> to do so much, put so much effort into something in the service of something that might be completely untrue. We can do it often. We can do it on retreats a lot. Silence is a very fertile environment, I found, for forming judgments and conclusions. You know, and usually on a retreat, you, you will have somebody who offends you. You can count on it. They may offend you repeatedly. They may offend you just by being alive. They may not do anything at all they do. They just offend you. But they, they may also do things. You know, you, you may sit beside somebody who has a lot of restlessness in their body, or a cough, or a hiccup, or... You know, whatever. They're doing something you don't like. <coughs> and we can see so easily upon those details. We don't see the person anymore. We don't maybe see what kind of pain or sorrow they may be in. What we see is our irritation. We see upon the details of one sitting or experiencing ourselves, a feeling, a thought, a memory. And again, we see the construction really becomes so solid so quickly. The words, I am, I need. The images, the conclusions. We freeze others and we freeze ourselves into a kind of image 
based upon that detail or particular. And of course then, we miss the wholeness. We miss the fullness. We miss the space. And if you notice when you do that, when we do that, when we seize upon a particular, we don't see anything else. You know, if you're, for example, you take that example of sitting beside an, your neighbor who shuffles a lot. Well, do you really enjoy the moment between shuffles? <laughs> Not at all. You can never relax because you're anticipating it coming. <laughs> you're anticipating its return. You know, so you come in and, and, you know, maybe you've had some hours with a sore knee or a sore back. I mean, do you enjoy the moments when it's really not there? Often not. We just, we're, we're on guard. You know, we're on guard duty, we're on alert. We're waiting for that pain to return. We don't rest in the times when the body feels perfectly well, or rest in the sinus between the shuffles. We sense how contracted we become when we seize upon the details and we miss the fullness of that moment. It's like breathing in and never breathing out. It's like only looking at the clouds in the sky and not the space. And if we're not attentive, we can really get lost in that contractedness. And we accept almost our, our judgments and constructions at that moment to be an absolute shift. And when that happens, there's a kind of an abandonment that, that is taking place. We're abandoning ourselves, the wholeness of ourselves, by seizing upon those judgments. And we abandon the wholeness of another. It's like the doctor with Rebecca. If only... He, if he only saw his neurological assessment and construction, then in a way it would be an abandonment of Rebecca. She would be confined to a life far less than what was possible for her. When her psychiatrist was able to honor his human assessment of Rebecca, then she was seen as a whole person and encouraged to reach for what was possible. So in our practice, we learn to be attentive rather than inattentive, so we don't get lost. We question rather than assume. We learn to be awake rather than habitual. We are, in essence, learning the art of non-abandonment. We're learning the art of embracing the wholeness of the moment of ourselves, of others, rather than seizing upon the fragments, rather than losing ourselves in the details. The art of non-abandonment, it lies in investigation, but also dedication. The willingness really to reach for healing and the freedom that is possible, rather than settling for fragmentation. Because that must surely be the worst kind of abandonment, to settle for our judgments being the truth. Sometimes we learn just to pay attention to those kind of <coughs> slogans or mantras that say, I am, 
You are. This is. We learn to pay attention to what we dwell upon and obsess about, what repeats. We learn to pay attention to the repetitive thoughts and emotions and judgments because they reveal where we are contracting around a detail rather than opening to what is. And you know, we cultivate that kind of uh, creative disbelief by asking, what is this? What is this? And mostly we see that dwelling doesn't really last in the light of investigation. And sometimes, you know, it's our willing to no longer freeze ourselves in judgments or no longer freeze others in judgments. But that's the beginning of healing. Many of our judgments and assumptions and beliefs and conclusions are, are quite latent and habitual. We don't even know we have them. Until we run into somebody who feels or thinks differently than we do. Then we see what it is that we hold on to. I have a, a teenage son, he's 18, and, and um, uh, when he would have friends over to my house, 18 year old boys, excuse me, it's just very judgmental, they take up a lot of space. You know, they're big. They're big, and, and usually they don't talk very much, I think. You know. I mean, most of they do a kind of grunt. How you doing, Sam? Mm. Yeah. Good day, John. Mm. Yeah. But occasionally one will come and, and make an effort to be polite. You know, one day one of his friends came and he was making an effort to be polite to Aaron's mom. You know, so sitting down waiting for Aaron, probably praying that Aaron would hurry up. But sitting down talking to me and he says, you know, so what do you do? And I explained to him what I did in my life. And he kind of looked at me. <laughs> and he said, why would anybody want to do that? You know. <laughs> and so I, I gave him this kind of short Dharma talk, you know, about how all human beings really wanted to be happy and wanted, wanted peace. And he still looked at me <laughs> and he said, I don't. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I felt kind of offended. You know, I felt kind of offended. What do you mean you don't want to be pleased? Of course you want to be pleased, right? <laughs> You're going to be one of these people if it's the last thing you want. <laughs> and I realized, you know, of course it's a view. With you. Not everybody wants peace. Who doesn't want to be peaceful? <laughs> well, why do you say everybody wants peace? Everybody wants to be happy. <coughs> it's with you, isn't it? He clearly doesn't want that. <coughs> Can I be happy with that? You know, it's so interesting that sometimes we just don't even know we have them until our <coughs> constructs clash with the constructs of another. And then we see the possibility of how divided we can be by that class. It's not a life sentence, it's not, it's not intrinsic to that class that we be divided. But if we're not going to be divided by that class of constructs, it is going to take quite some 
opening on our part to be able to sustain listening, to sustain being present. But how, because how often it is when we, when there is a clash between our constructs and the constructs of, our, of another, how quickly we just start to close down in that moment. Mm-hmm. If that person ceases to matter to us, it's almost as if they cease to exist. They're no longer valid, they're no longer relevant, they're no longer deserving of our attention, we think. So our practice does ask of us in those moments of class not to suddenly abandon what we understand to be true or what we value or what we treasure, but to sustain the openness to not seize upon the details to be able to listen, because in the absence of that, there is no healing, and there is only division and separation. Sometimes we almost see that we kind of want to have beliefs, that at times our our beliefs or our judgments are kind of anxiety-driven compelled by fear, by, by not wanting to be lost and not knowing. That, that sometimes when we say, you know, you are, I am, this is, in a way it seems like it's kind of a way of making our world feel secure and familiar and, and definite and known. Sometimes it feel, might feel like <coughs> to say I don't know is to be exposed and vulnerable. But our judgments and our beliefs that are anxiety-driven may never lead to intimacy or freedom. In fact, the greater the weight of anxiety behind our judgments is, it's the greater the divide and the more the anxiety. We see that if we believe someone to be irritating or annoying, terrible person. If we are really definite about our judgment, really confirmed in our judgment, then in those moments we, you know, if we're really secure and safe in our judgment, in those moments we really don't feel that much inspiration inwardly to investigate ourselves. You know, if we're, if we're able to say, you know, you're like this, you know, you're a terrible person, we don't feel that encouraged inwardly to look at how much we might be invited in that moment to cultivate generosity or acceptance or tolerance because you are like this. And yet sometimes our judgments are just blown apart. You know, we can be so sure of our kind of Vipassana enemy, you know, so sure that that person on the retreat is such a difficult, terrible person. And sometimes it can just be blown apart. You know, maybe they're the person who hands us a tissue when we sneeze or opens the door for us or invites us to go in front of them on the lunch line. And then what do we do with our assumptions? What do we do with all those judgments? They're suddenly not so true. Sometimes we don't want to alter our view. Investigation is meant to awaken us, to inspire openness, to inspire a vastness of heart. And there's two elements to investigation. There's an element of investigation, one element which is one dimension which is experiential, 
and the other dimension of investigation is reflective there's a whole range to reflective investigation sometimes it means reflecting on the teaching means reflecting on insight sometimes reflective investigation means just taking a few moments to pause at the end of the sitting or at the end of the walking and to kind of just explore, to just to reflect on that, that period of time. What was the quality of our consciousness? What did we dwell upon? What was sticking? What was repetitive? What did we let go of? What were the qualities that were most accessible, visible to us? Whether our mind was contracted or spacious or peaceful? Sometimes those moments of reflection really reveal to us where it is maybe that we need to let go or what it is that we need to cultivate. Sometimes reflective investigation is brought to something that is really we're obsessing about or preoccupied with. We bring a questioning, a probing, what is needed? What does this state of mind need? What, what does this kind of repetitive or stickiness inside of ourselves really need? Or we ask ourselves what it is that we're holding on to so tenaciously, or what is missing? What can we cultivate? What is true? On a, in a wider sense, investigation really means kind of exploring some of the teaching and really asking how our lives are in accord with it. Do we really understand what is suffering and how it's caused? Do we really apply the path to the end of suffering in the moment? Do we really understand, you know, what are the implications of understanding change or impermanence? What are the implications of that in our own life? What are we being asked? What kind of response is being asked to us? What do we understand about our, uh, this, this sense of me, this sense of self that can seem so solid or impenetrable, that leads us to say, I am? We learn to probe that. Sometimes in those moments when we're most prone to say, I am, we turn it around and we say, am I? Sometimes in those moments when we're, we're maybe most inclined to say of someone else, you are. We turn it around and we say, are you? We learn to have the willingness to probe some of those most solid conclusions. This kind of re reflective investigation is not just thinking about something. You know, it's not some more spiritual form of obsession. It's learning to question. It's learning to probe. It's learning to to go beneath the surface of things, to, to really find that heartfelt willingness to see more fully it's a kind of divine curiosity in search of freedom. And that's the piece to remember. Meditation is experiential investigation. It's really looking at all those places where, you know, sometimes in a day we say, I can't do this, this is not possible. We learn to really probe that. Experiential investigation is in those moments, you know, when you, you have that first twinge in your knee and your mind says, run fast, 
and you find the willingness to stay there present just a little bit longer, see what happens. That's experiential investigation. You know, it's when you look at the schedule on a notice board and you say, oh, I can never do that. And you try it. That's experiential investigation. When you maybe see yourself kind of uh, prone to get lost in fantasy or daydream, and, and you begin to notice it, and you maybe apply some restraint, not because it's bad or wrong, but because you want to see what happens when you don't just jump into that familiar habit pattern. That's experiential investigation. It's really learning to extend our horizons when we find the willingness to stay with something rather than to close down or flee from it. We are extending those horizons just to see what happens. Just to see what unfolds in those moments. It's a stepping out of the world of assumptions and conclusions and sometimes it's stepping out of the world of fear. I often feel like the most direct way to transformation is really to turn towards all of those things that we're most tempted to flee from. To stay connected with all of those things that we're most tempted to abandon. To commit ourselves to, to peace, to compassion, in the midst of chaos and struggle, to investigate what is possible. It is really a gesture of freedom in search of freedom. Okay, just a moment quietly again. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.